0: Hello and welcome back to the British Food History Podcast. I am Dr. Neil Buttery, food historian and chef. I'm back from my holes. You wouldn't know it by looking at me, I was completely doused from head to toe, in fact, 50, whilst the rest of my family strolled away from the airport looking like horse chestnuts. But there you go. Anyway, my guest today is Heather Ellis of Sheffield University. Helen is a historian of education. And she, along with academics from University of Wolverhampton and UCL, have just embarked on an ambitious project looking at people's experiences and memories of their school dinners in all four UK home nations. In the UK, school dinners have been supplied by the School Meal Service, i.e. a branch of the government, since 1908. They have called this the School Meals Project, and they want your food memories. If you've had any experience with school dinners, school meals in the UK, wherever old you may be, and whatever the interaction may be, the pupil, parent, member of staff, the project's website, including information of how to contact, is found in the show notes. Now, of course, you know, I love hearing about your food memories too. And remember, there's going to be a postbag edition very soon. There's one more conversation to go after this one and then it's postbag so you need to start thinking about what you want to write in about if you've got anything to add about today's conversation or any of the conversations or episodes you've heard so far please let me know if you want to send me other stuff for the postbag edition go ahead maybe blog post or podcast episode topics recipe requests are there any traditional cooking techniques that are causing you bother let me know Have you seen anything of interest in the news, online, in journals? Please contact me, email neil at britishfoodhistory.com or tweet me at neilbuttery or if you like on Instagram and threads as well as Doctor. dr underscore neil underscore buttery or if you don't want to send me anything so public, my DMs are always open. I'll leave a post on the British Food History Facebook discussion page which is at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. The podcast has been doing very well, by the way, listeners. Thank you for all your support. With every episode, the podcast is creeping up the charts. more followers. So thank you very much everyone for listening, for downloading, for telling their friends and families, their colleagues. If you haven't passed on the good word yet, please do so. And if you haven't already, write a very brief review. It only has to be a couple of words. Follow or give us a rating, a five-star one preferably, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to support the upkeep of the podcast and blogs by donating a virtual coffee or pint, or indeed a virtual anything you choose, please visit the website britishfoodhistory.com and go to the support the blog and podcast tab. All monies go into making more content. On that very same page, you can become a £3 monthly subscriber where you get access to premium blog content, a monthly newsletter, and my Easter eggs. Now, usually there's an Easter egg attached to every episode. There isn't one this week, but there is going to be a blog post coming soon with a recipe just for subscribers on the topic of school meals. That said, there's a recipe for non-subscribers too. I'm going to tell you about both of those at the end. And of course another way to support would be to purchase a copy of One of My Books, A Dark History of Sugar and my biography of Elizabeth, Raffled, called Before Mrs. Beaton both published by Pen & Sword History. Okay, back to today. Heather and I talked about the origins of the school meal service in the first decade of the 20th century. The food surfed up over the next 100 years or so including pink sponge and custard, liver with the tube still on and the now infamous turkey twizzler. We also talked about Maggie Thatcher, Milk Snatcher, the fall in quality of school dinners and Jamie Oliver's campaign to get them sorted out, as well as many other things. I'll tell you about this week's premium content at the end, as I said, but now the school meal service with Heather Ellis. Welcome, Heather, to the British Food History Podcast. You're very welcome.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Now, we're going to be talking about a subject that I think is going to fire off many food memories for people, because we're going to be talking about the school meal service.
1: Yeah, I hope so. We're very interested in people's memories, so fingers crossed.
0: It seems like, well, it's a very interesting project. It's going to trigger all sorts of memories, good and bad, (laughs) as soon as we start talking about school dinners. This seems to be quite a large and ambitious project that you're developing. Could you tell us just a little bit about it and, and who's involved?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's an ESRC funded project. It's a two year project, and it involves three university partners. So University of Sheffield, where I'm from, Mm -hmm. University of Wolverhampton, where the co-investigator Gupinder Lally is based, and University College London, where the PI of the project, Professor Gary McCulloch, is based. And there are also three research associates attached to the project, one at each university. And essentially, it is a project designed to create the first comprehensive social and cultural history of the school meal service in England, uh, in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, going back to 1906 and the first legislative intervention in school feeding by the UK government. And it comprises three strands. um, The first is the policy strand which looks at the history of policy in the area of school meals and that's led by ucl Mm -hmm. then there is my strand which is uh, the oral history strand and our mission which we have accepted is um, (laughs) to try to engage with as many people as possible really going as far back as possible so including people in their 90s to talk to them about their memories of school meals their feelings opinions. And often those will be multi-generational. So you might have a great grandparent talking to a child who's currently mm-hmm. having school meals. Those conversations are quite interesting. And the third strand is an ethnographic strand, which is going into partner schools that we're working with today all around the UK, uh, talking to the children about their own views on school meals and listening in with permission to some of their conversations in the dining hall, as well as talking to their teachers and the catering staff and their parents. So we're trying to put all these different strands together and hopefully produce something interesting.
0: That's a lot of strands. (laughs) You have to get knitting.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: (laughs) I've had several experiences over several times with school dinners as a pupil. So I grew up, I'm trying to think about this. I was born in 77. So I Mm must've started primary school in about 1981, Mm -hmm. 1982. Went all the way through to sixth form. I came back as an adult, as a teacher, and it was very obvious there were different phases <laughs> to those things they, they changed completely by the time I returned. And the thing is, I was a teacher by at the age of 22. I'd just gone mm-hmm. A-levels, degree for four years, one-year training. And by the time I'd gone back to schools, it had completely changed. Well, we'll get onto those different phases. But I thought, really, I'd just ask about origins. Obviously, there was a time where there weren't any School dinners. So I was just wondering what prompted the the government to start these uh, school dinners and how they were funded.
1: You're quite right that the school, the elementary school system in the UK actually goes back to 1870. And there was no government intervention in terms of school meals until 1906. So there were some 36 years of experience leading up to that intervention. Mm. And the immediate context for the introduction of Some form of school meals was the Boer War, and the recognition when men, young men, were called up to, to go and fight, when they were physically examined and their diets were examined, a significant proportion were found to be malnourished. And there was an ongoing debate after that about how that could be remedied. And one of the suggestions put forward, which was indeed enacted in law, was some what's called permissive provision for school meals. And that meant that the local education authorities were not legally obliged to provide school meals, but they could choose to Mm -hmm. if they felt that there was a particular need in their district. And they could apply for access to the rates, the local rates, the local taxes to feed uh, those children that couldn't afford to pay for school meals. Mm -hmm. But the basic, Situation was that if parents could pay, they should pay right Mm -hmm. from the start. So it wasn't that there was a universal free school meal system in 1906. It was up to the local authorities to opt in. And if they did, the the vast majority of parents would be expected to pay uh, daily.
0: I see. If there were free school meals, was it it subsidised by the paying parents or was that coming out of a separate pot?
1: It was subsidised in the extent that the Paying parents would pay local rates, and the local education authority could make an application to have the costs of the free school meals reimbursed from the rates. It's a very um, old ancestor of council tax, so based mm-hmm. on the local population. So they would support the poor children in their in their own area.
0: And what sort of food were being served up by this first? version of the school meal service
1: if we look at it on the surface it it doesn't look very appetizing mm. um, if there was any meat at all it would tend to be very heavily minced so the actual nutrition content was quite low it would be things which filled up children um, or made them feel full up so potatoes gravy bread lots of bread small amounts of milk some eggs so not nutritionally worthless by any means but cheap yeah and and not diverse i suppose not diverse and Mm. you also have to think about um how ingredients could be stored without fridges without electricity um so they they were quite constrained in in terms of what they could provide to sometimes you know many hundreds of children at a time
0: Mm. so i suppose really since cheap refrigeration and kitchen equipment didn't kick in until after the second world war am i right in maybe assuming that the Repertoire of those school meals didn't really change in the first half of the 20th century.
1: I think I think that's that's broadly right. I think if anything, in the Second World War, it got worse because of rationing mm. um, and evacuation and the damage to school buildings and infrastructure. So where there were kitchens, many schools' kitchens were damaged. So in many cases, children had to be served in makeshift um, dining halls and kitchens, sometimes in church halls, things like that. And with rationing, they were really quite limited in what they could provide uh, in terms of what a normal child was allowed to eat. So, yeah, if anything, it went downhill a bit until after the Second World War.
0: Yes. But certainly after the, the Second World War, we did start to understand the science behind nutrition mm. and uh, the importance of uh, a varied diet. So things changed for the for the better, <laughs> when you get into what the sixty, uh, the 1960s or nineteen sixties or 1970s?
1: Well, one of the one of the first things you see in the nineteen sixties is fish fingers, so you can you can make your <laughs> choice as to whether that's an improvement or not. Sure. But yes, definitely the the science of nutrition comes into its own in the early sixties, and child nutrition, partly in emulation of what's going on in the United States, is quite a big thing in the early sixties, and you start getting child nutritionists for the first time who show an interest in schools and you start to see the nutritional content of each portion of food being labeled and being shared with parents even in some very progressive schools mm. so for instance the main course would have to contain a certain amount of protein vegetables carbohydrates and the puddings were where you would get your calcium and your milk content in and so you start seeing perhaps in some ways a less varied diet but much more awareness of the nutritional content and so you'd see things like I've just got in front of me a menu Mm. from a 1960s school in London and actually it's a local education authority um, suggested menu so there's also an attempt to standardize uh, meals across different schools Mm -hmm. so on Monday you have minced beef and carrots and gravy with mashed potato okay or hot pot which to me there isn't that much difference between them but (laughs) that's (laughs) fine On Tuesdays, you have steak and kidney pie, on Wednesdays, liver and onions, on Thursday, corn, beef or toad in the hole, Mm -hmm. with seasonal vegetables, Mm. tinned peas (laughs) and (laughs) boiled cabbage, which is a particular strong memory for a lot of people. Sure. And on, on Friday, you had fish, which is still the same today. You still have fishy Fridays, at least my children do. Right. So some things haven't uh haven't changed. So there'd be a particular day where you'd have a particular type of food like fish to make sure that across the week children would get as balanced a diet as, as possible.
0: So I suppose when I was at school in the very early eighties,
1: mm-hmm. I mean I
0: remember those meals that you've just described. Mm-hmm. So things that I remember fondly are things like egg and bacon pie.
1: Ooh, um, that's nice.
0: Spam fritter, which is a very Yorkshire yeah. thing.
1: That's a very popular one, right?
0: Yeah, I absolutely loved it. <laughs> the old pink sponge with the pink icing and the pink custard. Yeah, all the milk puddings, even sago tapioca. Tapioca. I know it some, makes some people one of them, but it was known I as Frogspawn.
1: That's by right. Yeah, lots of children. Yeah.
0: In fact, I still I make it. I've got some in my <laughs> store cupboard. I love it. <laughs>
1: There you go. I think I might
0: be a minority, though.
1: Carried on into adult life.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's the boiled cabbage. There was the mashed potato served in an ice cream scoop mm-hmm. for the portioning. So mm-hmm. this ice cream scoop of of potato. But yeah. the the only one that I really despised was the ox liver with the tube still on it. <laughs>
1: I do actually <laughs> Which remember was really that.
0: Overcooked I rubbery. went to
1: school a few years later than you, but not not that much later. Mm. And I do remember those. And that was one thing I could not could not yeah. eat.
0: And I mean, I'm fairly gung ho as an adult about whatley, and I love liver I eat liver a mm. lot. But that was not a good way of cooking it. That's for sure. And I think I was quite lucky in in my school in um, in Pudsey, West Yorkshire, um, because those sorts of meals were served up throughout my whole school life, right up to sixth form, right up into the mid-90s. But I think for many other schools, or maybe the vast majority of other schools, things really changed and not necessarily for the better, didn't they, in in the early 1980s?
1: Yeah, that's true. And we can even take it back into the early 70s, um, when Margaret Thatcher was Secretary of State for Education. Hmm. That's when she actually became known as the milk snatcher. People often associate that with the 80s when she was prime minister, but it was actually a decision taken when she was education secretary. Ah. And she was presented with the need to cut costs in education. And the the only thing she could identify, which was relatively easy in her mind, I suppose, mm-hmm. to cut was uh, free milk for seven to 11 year olds. The free milk that had been available after the Second World War for secondary school children had already been Taken away previously, yeah. okay. so she wasn't the first milk snatcher. So it was being
0: reduced and receded.
1: That was that was her argument that she was only carrying on from a labour, uh, what I think had been a, a labour cut. That was that was the argument she made. But so she was already associated with cutbacks in terms of school nutrition and mm. food when she became prime minister. And what followed when she was prime minister is is more of the same. Really, she encouraged schools to get rid of their kitchens and to bring in private caterers most of the school meal service ended up being privatized by the end of the conservative government so new labor inherited a not completely but largely privatized um, sector um, food also as a result became very highly processed so some of the things that became legendary with jamie oliver a bit later on yes. turkey twizzlers yeah chicken nuggets fish fingers anything out of a packet that only needed a freezer on site and mm. no real preparation facilities
0: it was unbelievable wasn't it because if if i'm remembering this correctly the so sort of the legislation around food was you know you couldn't add any salt to the food remember the, mm. not adding any food any salt to the mashed potato so it was a really horrible mashed potato but it tastes get, of nothing but these turkey yeah. twizzlers had so much salt in but because they came with the salt that was okay. So it's really is a case of these people making a profit and I suppose following the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law.
1: Yeah, and it's it's interesting that the the school food standards and the the nutritional guidelines were not significantly updated until the days of Michael Gove in 2014, um, which preceded the universal infant free school meals, which we still have at the moment. Um, so there there'd clearly been a long period where there was a mismatch between the guidelines such as don't add salt and mm. the reality, which was these highly processed foods with lots of additives. But because it came uh, in the packaging, if you like, um, mm. it didn't actively um, go against those, those guidelines.
0: Mm. I mean, I remember being shocked turning up as a secondary school teacher. You know, you have dinner with the kids whenever yeah. you can. Sometimes you're a bit too busy to have dinner with the kids, but whenever you can. And I remember being really shocked, certainly by the turkey twizzlers and the, the gorilla's feet that they had, which was
1: oh, that was a particularly nice episode. Yeah, he says sarcastically.
0: It was a special needs school, so we had to order it. There was only a few kids. There's only maybe fifteen kids in the whole school, so we we didn't cook our own food. We, we just bought it in. There wasn't much choice because there were so few children. But there was one chap who was muslim but they didn't have a halal meat so he mm-hmm. went for the veget- vegetarian option he didn't have a problem with that fine but you were getting things like chips was the potato yeah, yeah and we've then, not mentioned chips yeah and then for his for the actual main bit the supposed nutrition or the, the protein element was a, a baked potato so that's all he yeah. got <laughs> And i just remember thinking yeah. what is going on here this is just vast. it's like i'm on a different planet compared to what When I was a a pupil, maybe Mm. six, seven years previous.
1: There's no doubt that that privatisation and above all the loss of on-site kitchens had Mm. a very important negative effect on, um, very significant negative effect on the quality of, and the choice available to children. There was almost no ability to tailor what was offered to children at a particular school who may come from a particular community or have a particular cultural heritage which as you say you know often involves food as a huge part of people's identity Mm. and their and their cultural heritage we that's probably one of the findings that's come out most strongly from working with the schools in the different parts of the country and who really celebrate the ability of their schools to to tailor their menus and to change them at quite short notice to take account of celebrations, religious or otherwise, that their children are are having with their families. And that's only possible if you have on-site kitchens and your own catering staff, or at least catering staff on-site that the local authority provides. So there has been uh, a much more positive change in recent years, Mm -hmm. which we can talk about. But yes, I, I think most people would identify with your Perception of that change from when you were at school to being a teacher in the early 2000s. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. I started teaching in
1: 1999.
0: Yes. Yeah. Just. So you were
1: just just before the Jamie Oliver campaign. That's right. A few years.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we should we should talk about that maybe. Well, he's a divisive figure actually, isn't he? A lot of people kind of get a bit grumpy about him because I think he makes a lot of noise. Well, I think people say, oh, he's just trying to get attention. He's a celebrity chef and he shouldn't be taking a notice, which I think is absolute nonsense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think he's genuinely passionate. I think yeah. people automatically bristle up when people start talking about food yeah. because, you know, we're all addicted to process food to some degree. And if you don't see a problem with that, then you just got somebody barking at you, telling that you're, the food that you eat is crap and you're going to immediately take offense at it. So it's it's a bit, been a very difficult um, path for him to navigate, I, I assume.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think he was accused of food snobbery when he first started out because there was an implication that it wasn't just the school meals that were poor but if parents were okay with their kids eating this kind of food, or at least didn't actively protest against Mm. it, or didn't care what the kids ate at school as long as they had something, you know, that's quite an accusation to to level at at families. And I don't think he really, I mean, I probably shouldn't say what he thought, but my impression is that he didn't really think that that would happen, that there would be that backlash. It seemed to him a a practical problem that the quality of school meals was, was not good enough. And he was a chef who knew about nutrition. He had young kids. He knew what children liked. He thought he could help and and make things better. And there was there was a lot of support for what he was trying to do. But I think there was also uh, a backlash against some of the implications of what he said. And I, I also I agree with you that it's difficult for an individual, however famous, to make a sea change in such a such a large area as school meals without active government support and he did get he did get government support in time um and actually he you know the movement that he started um, became much bigger mm. than than just him but these things do tend to peter out over time and you know after a couple of years it it sort of lost some of its some of its strength I guess but I think what it did do there are lasting legacies from his campaign one of the most important is that we saw an almost immediate reverse in the closing of school kitchens and actually a huge move to open them again, build new ones where they didn't exist. And so now the majority of schools do have access to on-site food preparation facilities or they share them with other schools. Mm -hmm. And just the awareness that it, it raised, I think whether you agreed with him or not, it got people talking about the quality of school meals. And people started to say things like you've been saying, actually, yeah, I, you know, at my school or where I teach or where my kids go to school, we have that as well. I thought it was just us. And actually you see, particularly with the TV series that he did as well, I think when more people watch TV than watch it now, it it had more of an impact because of the medium that he was that he was using. And because he was so recognizable.
0: Going from memory, because I remember watching that at the time, I, I think that the key moment was when he convinced the people that worked in the kitchen
1: yeah,
0: about just about seasoning something doesn't mean loads yeah. of salt and comparing it to the food they were, they were getting in, comparing to the amount of salt that was in this processed food. And they just were amazed, yeah. you know, yeah. that they'd had the pull, the, the wool pulled over their, their eyes really by the, I suppose, by the companies. And it was just suddenly, um awakened to the, yeah. just how bad the food was. And they really took it to heart. And I've forgotten the name of the kind of the, 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 the lady in charge of the kitchen, but she just went on this, uh, what seems like just this crusade, which well, when I changed my mind. So I guess I'm projecting sure. a little bit.
1: I think I think we all do. And I think that's what we found with this project, that people see the issue very much through their own memories. And that's why that was the particular aspect of the debate that we wanted to focus on, because it is an emotive issue and everyone has experienced it. Either you did have school meals or you didn't, but in some way you encountered it. And I think I think I remember Jamie Oliver also, at one point, telling the catering staff to think of themselves as chefs, and that, you know, actually, what they were doing was a very skilled job. Mm. And, you know, it was an opportunity to make really good food that children would really like eating, and the teachers would like eating, and that, you know, it was a job that they could be proud of. Mm. And I think when a lot of schools brought school meals back into, Fully back into local authority provision after that uh, intervention by Jamie Oliver, there was a sense of a greater sense of pride in in the profession. I'm that's anecdotal. That's just from speaking to people who worked in the kitchens, the dinner ladies, other mm. catering staff, mm-hmm. that they also recognise a change around that time when some of them were re-employed on different contracts and switched from a private company to. Uh, the school, and in a sense, they were then sort of taken over or back into local education authority. I
0: returned to a school very briefly, um, recording a TV show. I had to make a giant jaffa cake. It's a long story. But anyway, <laughs> I had to do it. In a, I had to do it in a primary school, and I, had, and I made it in, in the in the kitchens, the working kitchens. Yeah. And I was amazed at the standards of the food, and like yeah. you say, that the pride that people had them. They baked their own bread every day. From yeah. scratch, I just you know I couldn't believe it. It's like this is more um, from scratch than most restaurants.
1: In some ways, it's going back to the original. I suppose the strength of not having fridges and uh, microwaves and things like that in the 1906 Act. Everything that was made in schools had to be made on site, had to be made fresh, hmm. um, and then and had to be made out of ingredients that were locally sourced. Yeah. So if there were any any strengths to to that original idea, then we're almost going back for different reasons due to climate change, sustainability. Also, something that children are interested in and want to see happening in their schools. The idea of having, you know, vegetable patches in schools was mm. was all the rage in the in the Second World War. You know, dig for dig for victory. Sure. Um, the idea that you could turn a playing field into vegetable garden or kitchen garden that would that would provide the school with almost all of what it what it needs. We're working with one school um, in Lincolnshire, Washingborough Academy, who grow, I think, almost all their own food. Mm. they almost completely self not reliant. What am I talking about? Self-sustaining? Self-sustaining. Yes. Um, and the quality of their food is also really good. I mean, they are not necessarily typical and they've, they've won all sorts of awards. Mm. And we wanted to work with them because they're leading the way in, in this sort of thing. But there's a lot of things which which they do, which other schools without the resources can do for themselves where they don't have a lot of land. And each of our partner schools in their own way, in very different circumstances sometimes, are also doing really interesting things with with food on their own sites. So there's definitely a movement. There's the school gardening movement. There's all sorts of really interesting things happening in the last 10 years or so.
0: Amazing. I guess it's gone full, full circle, but for yeah. very different reasons. It's really inspiring, I think. You know, like I say, because I was pretty depressed about school dinners last time I was a teacher. I thought i would quickly just mention actually free school meals. The children that have free, free yeah. school meals. I remember taking my little envelope of cash into school every Monday morning for my, yeah. for my lunch. But I also remember, this is more at secondary school, that whenever we queued up, and this must have been mortifying, for the oh. students. But everyone who had free school meals were told to come around to the front. So I had to walk past everybody <laughs> to <laughs> yep. go to the front of the queue. The school was making sure they got a free school meal and they got the first choice of everything, which is good. But the way they went about it was just unbelievable. <laughs> I guess there's always been a stigma though, has there to um free school meals?
1: Yes, there there has. And our colleague Gary McCulloch who I mentioned before also had free school meals as a child and he shares his memories of having to put his hand up and say free sir or something like that sure that was something that that sparked his interest in the in the issue and I suppose he was at school in the 1960s Mm. I'm guessing so Mm -hmm. sorry Gary if I get that wrong um but you see in the archive letters from parents going back to the 50s and 60s Mm perhaps had five or six children in school at one time and only two or three were eligible for free school meals and they had to be the older children for whom it was very embarrassing right and they would write and say well please can my younger children have access to it instead because mm-hmm. they don't mind but that was the rule that it had to be the older children as long as they were in school they had to because you what got to f- f- first dibs was yeah exactly <laughs> was and, the policy uh, how And and if you're 15 or 16, that could be highly embarrassing, as you say, if you have to queue up in a separate in a separate line. Mm. There were even stories of different coloured trays being used for children with preschoolers. It it has got better in the sense that now, as you'll know, um, most school meals are digitally paid for. In secondary school, for instance, a lot of people just have a dinner card and the money goes on it either from the parents Mm -hmm. or from the school via the local authority. Right. So. It sounds the same, looks the same when they're paying for their for their dinner and they actually get to pay for it themselves with a card, which makes it much less stigmatizing mm-hmm. than when essentially they were given a, a token or a bit of paper instead of their peers who were carrying around money and, and giving it. So it's really quite quite a, a change in that respect. And that, that is one of the arguments for universal free school meals, which we've got in this country you know from well in England from reception through to year two, in Wales and Scotland, there's actually a, a very powerful campaign to, and I think governments have both accepted it
0: uh, mm. to extend
1: that to the end of primary school, so up to the equivalent in England of year six, yeah, and even beyond.
0: I wonder why Scotland and Wales just seem to be just more progressive than England when it comes to these things. What is it about the English? I guess we're more conservative with a, with a small C.
1: It could be partly party political. And this is, this is only my my view that, you know, if you look at the history of cutbacks in school meals, they're not universally, but, but frequently under conservative governments. We talked about Margaret Thatcher before. The fact that you have a Labour government in Wales and have had for, I forget how many years now. And similarly with the SNP in Scotland, they have what I would describe as a more progressive view of, you know the welfare state and the yes. responsibility of the government to to reduce child poverty by actively intervening rather than simply well, not simply in the in recent history, but trying to create jobs, getting more people into work and sort of fixing it indirectly mm-hmm. through through employment, which of course is important too. And that's one of the things that makes it difficult to talk about because if you do get into party politics and the fact that different parties have had different, policy priorities and different approaches to the problem of child hunger and poverty we need to talk about those things you know and we need to try and 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 understand that there are facts there in terms of how many children are living under the poverty line how many do feel hungry how many go without meals and not blame necessarily this party or that party but but just try and fix it
0: yeah, and of course, there's been the last few years now, and I suppose it came to a head during the pandemic about yeah. extending those free ma- meals into into holidays, especially the summer holiday. I mean, yeah. I still remember as a teacher, you'd some some children, luckily a minority of children, be obviously much more ramshackle coming out of the summer holidays than they did going in, you know, at the other end, a very marked difference. Against one of those things where you, you say, "Oh well, I loved my summer holidays. We lived opposite yeah. fields. We skipped about, whatever kids do, <laughs> getting into trouble, climbing trees." Mm. Um, but you forget that is not the same. It's not representative. <laughs> you think your own life is representative, don't you? Yeah. Um, and there's been ideas of kind of getting rid of the summer holidays and making everything kind of more even. I mean, we don't need a summer holiday anymore. We're just used to it. And people don't like change. Is there going to be any? policy changes, do you think,
1: coming up about holiday times, especially that summer holiday? There is definitely a lot of pressure to continue and extend the provision of free school meals for those children that are eligible into the summer holidays. I think there's also a greater pressure to raise the threshold by which people qualify for free school meals, because it it is quite low compared with some of the devolved nations. Hmm. Again, off the top of my head, I think it's around £7,200 income. Right. So if you are on in receipt of certain benefits, then it's very likely that you'll qualify, but it's not a guarantee anymore. Gosh, that's um, low,
0: isn't it? Blimey. It is
1: low. And those figures do vary across the United Kingdom. In Northern Ireland, the situation is slightly different because the threshold is about £14,000. But there are other calculations that are slightly different, but it is, I think, still more generous. So there's there's more of a push, not just a sort of what might be described as tinkering at the edges in terms of extending into holidays, however important that is, and it is important, but actually also making more children have access to free school meals mm-hmm. and for their parents to qualify. Because what we're really concerned about is those children who don't qualify but still with the cost of living in particular at the moment, find it hard to pay for school meals. Mm. Where I live, I won't say where it is, but where I live, we're facing a 95p increase per meal in terms of, of what parents will have to pay in September. And just what I can see in my WhatsApp groups and people that I talk to that mm. has sparked real fear, people who are just about managing to pay for school meals, facing you know, perhaps an increase of, £65 pounds a month, depending how many children they have, which makes it actually one of the biggest bills for some people after their their rent or their mortgage.
0: I suppose you get a trade-off in that people move to pat lunches and then they don't necessarily get a, a fully balanced diet in that. I mean, there's a very low proportion of packed lunches i can't remember what that actual statistic is but that that qualifies as a as a well balanced meal it's
1: about 2% is it is really is yeah. i mean it might be slightly higher but it's it's not much much higher i saw something i can't remember where the other day about what a because sometimes when you go on school trips children who are on free school meals are given a packed lunch that's provided by the school and it was a bottle of water mm-hmm. uh, a cheese sandwich on white bread and some sort of sponge little sponge pudding sure. and the calorie count for all of that was about half of what was needed so and that, and that's an official packed lunch mm. so an and all processed
0: sp- as well really highly and processed, processed ingredients yeah the cheese mm. will
1: be very highly processed mm. and i think i think there are studies which show that children who only have packed lunches are nutritionally less well served you know, than, than people who eat school dinners. So mm-hmm. there's an incentive, there's reasons to to make these things affordable for those that need to pay and just to make them healthier for all children, whether they pay for them or not.
0: So I suppose really um, when people are thinking about school dinners, it's going to very much depend upon when, when you were at school and there's going to be some people with very much rose-tinted glasses, or oh, maybe not even <laughs> rose-tinted glasses. Rose-tinted glasses. Yeah, they, they were custard. just good, yes, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> You really want people to get involved in, in your project, don't you? I'm certainly going to be getting involved um, when we finish speaking. Um could you just tell the listeners about the data that you're that you're wanting to yep. collect? Because I'm sure there's going to be lots of eager people wanting to tell you about their <laughs> scope and their so. memories. I hope
1: so. Yeah, no, so there are two two types of data essentially that that people can get involved with. Um, that we're collecting. The first is we are looking for general memories. Um, That could be written accounts of your favourite memories or your worst memories of school meals. It could be images, photographs that you have. Um, It could be a particular object that just triggers memories of school meals, um, all that sort of stuff. There's a Uh, A section of the project website, which is the Mm schoolmealsproject.co.uk, where it's like a contact form. You can put in whatever you like and put your email address and we will get back to you and tell you what we can do with it and ask you what you would like us to do with it. The other way we are collecting data is through oral history interviews. So if you yourself either had school meals free or otherwise if you were the parent of someone that had school meals if you were a teacher if you were a dinner lady or lunchtime supervisor or other member of the catering staff um, we would love to talk to you we've got regional oral history uh, collection going on but we also have a national call Mm. so through the website again if you are interested in taking part and being interviewed then please give us your contact details and we will get in touch with you
0: Fantastic. I'm sure you're going to get plenty of people wanting to get involved in this. Have you had lots of um, interest already?
1: Yeah, at the moment, we we haven't launched the national call yet. I oh, suppose okay. I just did. Um, I mean, it's on the website. But what yeah. we've been working on so far is collecting interviews through our partner schools in Glasgow, Cardiff, London and Bradford. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to balance a sort of regional approach with a national call. But yeah, so far we've, we've had a, a lot of interest and it's, it's been even more than I'd expected and I thought it would be something that did get people talking. Oh, well,
0: fantastic. It's such a great project. Um, hopefully, um, maybe you come back and tell us about the conclusions that you, that you make after, after you've woven all those threads, threads together. But um, yeah, thank you very much for coming on. It's been fascinating.
1: Well, Thank you for having me. And yeah, I look forward to perhaps coming back and telling you about what we found out
0: Thank you very much, Heather. Links to the School Meals Project website and its Twitter handle are in the show notes, along with Heather's Twitter handle too. I'm very sure that many of you will want to contact the project and provide them with lots of lovely memory and lots of lovely data. Very important. In the show notes, I've included a clip of Jamie Oliver trying to work with those dinner ladies that we briefly mentioned when he was attempting to get them all on side when he was getting his campaign off the ground. Like I said, there's no Easter egg this week, but there will be a blog post appearing. Well, in the next week, just for subscribers, it's going to be a recipe of one of the things we've discussed today. And I can't decide at this moment whether it should be for Spam fritters or for pink sponge and custard. I'm going to have to toss a coin. But also I have written, but not posted yet. It's going to arrive in the next, well, day or two, a recipe for everyone. And that's for sago or tapioca pudding. I know it's hated by many, But honestly, you've just had bad experiences. It can be delicious. Don't let those thoughts of runny frog spawn put you off. Sago or tapioca are not as common as they used to be in the shops. But sago is easy to get hold of in the UK in Asian supermarkets. It's used in bubble tea these days. Also in the show notes, there are other school dinner-esque recipes from the blog. If you want to check those out, there's a jam roly-poly pudding. There's rice pudding and a walkthrough of how to make your own steamed sponge puddings. For those of you who remember the egg and bacon pie, there's actually a recipe for it, weirdly enough, in my Elizabeth Raffle book. And it's part of the recipe section at the end, which I put as an appendix. The recipe has essentially not changed since the 18th century, which for me is very pleasing. Now remember, I want your food memories fired off from today's episode of course your questions and queries about well every episode that's ever been also don't forget in september i've got three events manchester central library i'm talking about elizabeth raffold i'm also speaking about her at the ludlow food festival and i'm talking about the history of sugar at the chelsea history festival all of those are in september please have a look at the show notes for links about all of those events all right it's time for me to go until next time have a good week cheerio